As a healthcare professional, you know that pick trays were designed to save you time in pulling and placing components, but how often do you find yourself adding to existing trays? Now there's a solution. BD Maximal Barrier Plus pick trays contain more components than ever, making the pick insertion process more convenient and safer by reducing the risk of contamination in the sterile field. To learn more about BD Maximal Barrier Plus pick trays, visit bd.com slash picktrays. That's bd.com slash p-i-c-c-t-r-a-y-s. You have arrived at Season 3, Episode 7 of the I Save That Podcast. Happy October, everyone. This is a big month for the Association for Vascular Access, and that continues today with this episode. We at AVA are hopeful that you are staying safe with everything going on in our world and and staying busy as well as best you can. Um, In this episode, I'm joined, as always, by AVA Director of Clinical Education, Judy Thompson. Hello, Judy. What's going on? How are you? Hi, Eric. Getting ready for conference same stuff going on. Super excited. Sad that we won't be seeing everybody in person, but everything's good. Thanks for asking. We'd like to welcome to the show uh, Dr. Greg Shears, who is a friend of Ava. Judy, you know him well. He's here to chat with us about a recent meta-analysis that he did on PICS and bloodstream infections. So Dr. Shears, welcome. Uh, thank you, Eric. Uh, and uh, Judy, great to hear your voice. You and, as well. Uh, as well. Yeah, I'm. Uh, I'm excited to um, be able to chat with you today. Um, and you also mentioned the upcoming AVA conference. I'm uh, anxious to listen in on that um, as it happens in the future. I'm sure there's lots of activity, and we're all kind of trying to pivot under this unusual time. Without a doubt. So, for those of you new to our show or new to a little bit here that don't know Dr. Shears. Um, Greg Shears has been involved with Ava for a long time. <laughs> he is a pediatric anesthesiologist, and Greg, you have a lot of other bits to you. So introduce yourself a little bit for those few people out there that don't know you as well. Sure, thanks, Judy. Um, so I'm a uh, uh, a pediatric intensivist and anesthesiologist by training. Um, I've I've had the pleasure of working at uh, four different major institutions. I'm currently at the Mayo Clinic in uh, Rochester, Minnesota, and I was recruited there uh, back in 2001 to start the ECMO program. Uh, And also, I am the um, physician liaison to the nurse-led PIC team. So um, I've had a number of other roles in addition to that, but uh, that's probably good for the purposes of this. Well, thank you. And you have been a long, long-term long advocate for Ava, so thank you for that and very involved. But today, we get to talk about your recent publication that in May was in the Journal of Vascular Access, where you're looking at thrombosis rates as well with PICs versus centrally inserted um, catheters. So tell us a little bit about what what your thought process was when you got into creating the study? Sure. Part of the reason for doing this is, you know, I, I spend the vast majority of my time as a clinician. 
um, easily 75%. I'm either covering cases in the OR or uh, working up in the ICU. And um, and I, I care for both, even though my, my initial um, training was in PEDS, I actually care for um, uh, both critically ill adults and children. Um, and so I, I cover the whole spectrum. And I um, vascular access has been a longstanding passion of mine. And that's why I love Ava so much, because it's, uh, it's an opportunity to bring together people of like minds who value the importance of vascular access and also really want to get into the details about, um, you know, what is best practice? Because we all want to do the right thing for patients. And so um, I, I enjoy reading the literature. I enjoy listening to, um, you know, what other people are doing and, uh, and seeing, you know, was there anything special that came out, uh, and it, how can it help our practice? So, um, and, and that what I just said probably is true for just about everybody that's in vascular access. We we love this literature. Uh, we we always like to find some good stuff, and then uh, and uh, you know try to make patient care better based on it. I use the full range of uh, vascular access available from the things that I put in personally to the things I have to have people with different skill sets place. Um, and as I mentioned, I also help to manage the nurse-led PIC team. So I'm, I'm pretty vested in this whole business. Each of the tools that we have um, are very important for caring for patients. And I remember, uh, this is now several years ago, there were a couple meta-analyses that came out that I, I thought were not exactly correct, or at least they, they suggested a bias that I was concerned about because I, I thought that for people that don't live and breathe this stuff, don't really invest themselves in this literature, they might get the wrong impression regarding what the, these studies were saying. And one of the problems with um, a couple of these meta-analyses were that um, they were taking on, they were summarizing information that was grossly outdated. For the audience's sake, um, I, I want to fill in the blanks a little bit. Um, not everybody's a researcher. Not everybody. Uh, is familiar with the various terms. So if, if it's okay, Judy, I'm going to um, set the stage with a couple couple different um, uh, little background bits. Yes, please. And if you look at how um, studies are rated uh, in terms of their impact or importance, um, the, um, the greatest level, generally speaking, is considered a, a meta-analysis. Uh, and that ideally means that you're looking at similar prospective randomized trials uh, around a given topic, uh, and then you're doing an analysis based on that to try to see if the sum of all of those studies can help draw you to a specific ironclad um, solution, uh, decision, direction answer. 
Um, and it, again, if you read the literature broadly, you find that prospective randomized trials by themselves, sometimes because of some bias that couldn't be controlled for, even though the whole purpose of a prospective randomized trial is to do that, um, biases still can happen. Uh, you can get um, uh, differing answers between studies. And that can be very frustrating because as clinicians, we want to do the right thing. We, we want it black and white. We want it clear cut. And it's not always that way. And I noticed um, when I was reading a couple of these um, meta-analyses that were done that the um, they were including old studies that no longer reflected current practice. So what happens is um, you, you go through sort of an averaging process as you're looking at the data and trying to um, compare things. And the, the problem is if you average old data, it could sway um, what we want as clinicians. We're not practicing in the past. We're practicing now. And so we want information about that helps us now because we've evolved. Things have changed. You know, so for example, um, uh, the two studies that I'm referring to were related to uh, PIC catheters and or and central lines, and they were comparing um, rate of thrombosis and rate of infection. So um, uh, if, if I, I give another example, and this is probably a lame example, but, um, you know, right now we're in the middle of a COVID crisis. And uh, let's say that we were doing a study looking at the effectiveness of communication related to infectious issues between a school and the family. And we looked at studies that tried to study this from 1960 to the year 2020. So if you wanted to understand the effectiveness of that communication, uh, and the impact on the family, and you included times going back to 1960, clearly things have changed a lot regarding communication. Um, you know, they, we didn't have computers. Um, we might have had phone calls, but even that didn't happen very much back then. So you had to wait for snail mail to get to your home to get alerts about, oh, there's a problem with Neisseria, or there's or it's time for uh, flu shots or whatever that might be. Uh, and now uh, communication's instantaneous uh, and we're, we're getting alerts on our iPads and smartphones and all of that right away. We're, we're getting almost over-communicated because it's, it's on our computers, it's in our email, et cetera. So it's, and it's almost instantaneous. So you have to, if you're doing that study and you want a contemporary view of the effectiveness of that communication, you need to look uh, when that communication is more or less the same and standard. No different with vascular access and PICS. Um, uh, both you and I, Judy, have been doing vascular access for a while and um, things have changed a lot. Catheters have gotten better, material science has improved, and also we've gotten a little smarter because um, we pay attention to different things. We, we don't go by the philosophy of stuffing the, the biggest catheter mm -hmm. in a vessel anymore. We pay attention to catheter to vein ratio. 
we've improved our asepsis with insertion. Um, we're much more protocolized. So you can see that if you look at studies from the past that weren't paying attention to those issues and included those in an average of studies that also reflect the present and best practice, you're going to get kind of a mishmash and a, a bias of old stuff versus new. And you, you don't really have a sense of what the current reality is. I know I get a little blabby here. I'm going to pause, and then I'll keep and, um, uh, talking <laughs> about this. But do you have any other comments on that? Absolutely. I think you're spot on on that, Greg, that everything has changed. If you think about, about practice 15 years ago, how many people used ultrasound consistently on every line? Very yeah. few. Very and few. Some, some in vascular access, that that's all we did. But then we had these little, um, gosh, the first ultrasound I used flickered every time I put it on the skin. It was enough to cause seizures, I think. But look how far oh, we've Oh, I know. I remember. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, uh, we've come a long way, baby. Your meta-analysis, what, that was an excellent kind of summary of why you went about it. But what were your results of this? Sure, sure. Let me get into that. Um, so anyway, uh, I wanted to finish up that little background thing too. I, I apologize. I really oh, do get kind of blabby. I really felt it was necessary to point this out and to um, uh, bring up the point that you you can't look at that old data and you know, included in the present and then really think you have something people have. And, and I've seen some people being misguided from both of those two meta-analyses and the subsequent algorithms that have generated from them. People make decisions because again, unlike you and I, and, and the, uh, many of the other really, um, fastidious, uh, uh, you know, passionate vascular access folks, um, they don't really get into the details. So my point here is, don't, for the audience, please don't take papers for their, uh, just, just for, you know, look at, the, look at the abstract and take them for what they have. So anyway, I wanted to, my, my question really to myself that I wanted to prove one way or another was, well, if, if I tried to do the same thing as was done with that study. However, I only selected patients that or that looked at the studies after a given time point. Would would uh, my outcomes be different? Uh, would the outcomes for the study be different? Uh, and um, would it help people better understand where catheters lie in the present, not from the past? That was really the gist of it. We did what's called a Prisma approach. Um, and that's some uh, an acronym that is related to the um, uh, the study methodology called preferred reporting items for systemic uh, reviews and meta analysis, and it's the same methodology that these earlier meta analyses used. The difference being, I had to pick a year when I thought you know the bundles were in place and people were really starting to pay attention to current best practice. And, and so this was a little bit of a, 
grab out of the air. I thought, you know, 2006, 2008, 2010, where do I pick? The hard part, of course, is if you pick it too close to the present. Let's say I picked 2018. Well, there's going to be very few papers, and it's really going to limit the analysis. And if you go back too far, you start getting things that don't reflect current best practice. So I end up settling on 2006. And then from that, we, um, uh, we had a look at, uh, we sort of drilled down. Uh, and it, again, it, it speaks to how hard this process is. Um, you end up going through thousands of papers. It, it, it can be very time consuming. Uh, we we looked at a total of 5,900 records, and from that, uh, 4,600 um, articles were identified. And then when we did the 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 cut uh, to the year 2006 uh, that were relevant um, studies, um, it was uh, 407 articles, and from that. Uh, relevant articles, 31 studies could be included in the meta-analysis. So these weren't like cherry-picked articles by any means. These were using strict criteria so that we tried to be hands-off, just you know, do it by the methodology so that it's fair and as unbiased as it possibly could be. Uh, so anyway, that's kind of the setup. And I, I I don't want to bore the listeners because I don't know how many are interested in the process of science uh, or not, but it was a very clean uh, and attempted to be unbiased. It's just the data is the data. Uh, and let's just look at current practice. Well, Go Greg, ahead. real quick, just inter- um, sorry to interrupt, but I think we need to be interested in the setup of the study because really that's where we can tell if it's a valued study or not. So I appreciate so much that you spent the time to really go over your methodology, because that part is so important, whether or not it's a study that we can really trust. So thank you. So there, there were two main parts um, to the study. Uh, one was uh, looking at the impact on CLABSI uh, between the uh, two groups uh, that was comparing um, centrally inserted um, central venous catheters and peripherally inserted central venous catheters. And that was the whole idea here, the setup of comparing those two types of catheters, which both are great. We use them both. Uh, I use them both in my practice all the time. And the meta-analysis suggested that for that grouping of studies that we had, there was a, a 40 per, 48% reduction in the CLABSI rate for patients that receive uh, PICs compared to six. I, I'm going to you know, add a little bit more flavor to that. When you look at a PIC or look at a sick, nowadays, they look very similar. Um, uh, you can, if, if you didn't see the end or their length or other, you may not be able to tell them apart if they didn't have specific coloring to them because they're made of similar materials they may be double or triple lumened etc the the study itself showed this reduction in clabsy there may be some uh, additional reasons for that um, historically certainly physicians placed more six and um, nurses placed more picks 
And nurses uh, who people that were part of um, pick teams had more meticulous insertion techniques and were better uh, with um, proper insertions. Uh, and physicians, you know, it took a while until they, you know, were getting um, penalized financially to even get them to, you know, consistently wash their hands and do best practice with the bundle. Uh, but, you know, we, we've certainly gotten on board with that. And there's been a dramatic improvement regarding uh, the rate of and CLABSI for all categories of central venous access now. And I'm so grateful to see that and people paying attention to that. And then the second most important thing is care and maintenance. It doesn't matter what kind of line you have, whether it's a sick or a pick, you have to do proper care and maintenance. Try not to go into it all the time. Make sure you have appropriate asepsis before you access it, etc. So those are the things, those are the big things that make the difference regardless of which kind of line we have. The second big important thing to talk about is uh, there's been a lot of noise lately about PICs and their um, causing um, DVT. And, you know, in the one respect, I I look at those prior meta-analyses and I say, oh man, it's so misleading based on all this old data. But on the other hand, it's been good. And it's been good because it has helped to make this uh, a topic of conversation. Because we now spend a lot of time talking about catheter to vein ratio, improved insertion techniques, veno depletion. So it, it's been a bit of a catalyst uh, to help us all work towards better practice. So we, we know from a few good studies that, yes, it does make a lot of difference. The catheter to vein ratio makes a difference regarding the probability of a thrombosis. And the probability of a thrombosis has more to do, all else things being equal, to that catheter to vein ratio, regardless of the type of catheter. You know, peripheral IVs are going to thrombose if you stuff an oversized catheter in a small vein, you're going to thrombose off that vessel. Shouldn't be doing that. We should always choose to have the fewest lumens and the smallest diameter catheter in any vessel. And that's best practice. So it isn't best practice to do a bias study and then uh, try to reduce the use of appropriate catheters that in the right hands using the right technique are actually going to be better for patients. So um, by paying attention to um, the pick size as we, we, the various sizes of catheters here in the study, we looked at smaller versus larger picks. No surprise to me uh, that when you're using smaller picks like a four French catheter, there was not an increased risk of DVT compared to uh, central venous catheters. Though, if you're placing a larger PIC catheter, uh, uh, you, you're going to see an increased risk of a DVT for the same material, same insertion technique, etc. Again, this uh, meta-analysis proves that you can't just uh, look at the old data, number one. Number two, we must pay attention to catheter-to-vein ratios 
in order to reduce complications and whether it's a pick or whatever. So I was very pleased uh, as, as part of the study that it goes along with physiology, common sense, and it's also consistent with uh, an in-house study that uh, one of my colleagues did or several of my colleagues did here comparing uh, best practice with um, SICKs and PICs, and they showed uh, no increased risk of either infection or uh, thrombosis. This was a few years ago. Cawcut, one of my uh, uh, friends that I've done uh, a couple other studies with in, in different areas, um, she's a very smart lady and uh, did some excellent uh, research on a few other things as well. In summary, uh, re- uh, we saw in, within this study reduced CLABSI and no increased risk of DVTs when using a smaller PIC catheter, particularly if you're paying attention to catheter vein ratio. I'm going to pause there. Obviously, we had a lot of other data, but that, that's really the you know, the, the bottom line or the, the critical thing for folks to know. Tired of having to choose between a smaller diameter catheter or higher flow rates for your patients? Now you don't have to. PowerPick Provena catheters from BD provide smaller catheter to vein ratio and optimal infusion performance. These smaller diameter picks are used for short or long-term peripheral access for IV therapy, blood sampling, and power injection of contrast media. They also allow for central venous pressure monitoring. By combining proprietary technology and manufacturing processes, BD PowerPick Provena catheters help you maintain high performance for infusion therapy while occupying a smaller percentage of the vessel. To meet your patient's needs, BD PowerPick Provena catheters include a three French single lumen catheter with a three milliliter per second power injection rates a four French Dualumon catheter with a five milliliter per second power injection rates, and a five French Triple Lumen catheter with a five milliliter per second power injection rate. To learn more about how smaller diameter catheters can help, visit bd.com slash Provena. That's bd.com slash P-R-O-V-E-N-A. Now, a couple of questions came to mind as you were speaking. So now yep. when you were looking through the studies that made the cut, so to speak, did did all of them note the catheter vein ratios for either um, the pick that they placed or was it just French size? What you're talking about now and, and for the for the listeners out there, it's limitations of the study. And as a researcher, you would like people that were doing studies to be very consistent from one to the next. It would make for the strongest comparisons. So now what you're talking about is the limitations, things that as a researcher, it drives you a little crazy and you just have to kind of work with what you have. Because we went back to 2006, they they weren't necessarily paying attention to catheter to vein ratio, but what they were doing was uh, recording um, the pick catheter French size. Uh, And in doing so, at least we could have a sense of was a relationship to a given um, catheter size. So if you take your average adult male or female and you um, use a smaller catheter, chances are you're going to have 
fewer thrombotic complications because you're biasing towards the smallest possible pick. And hence, you're going to have less luminal occlusion from a, a catheter. And similarly, if you place a larger catheter, particularly in women, you know, if they on a percentile basis have smaller vessels, you're going to more likely have either a silent or a symptomatic thrombosis. It's just, you know, physiology. So it's um, uh, paying attention to catheter vein ratio, very important, and uh, trying to choose that smallest catheter size if we can. And you're going right back to what you said earlier. You got to treat people the way you'd want yourself or someone you love treated. And yeah. I think one stick is my limit, <laughs> but nonetheless. <laughs> so, Greg, I, I can't uh, tell you how much I've appreciated this talk. It's been really fun. And where can people go find your the study you just finished? Well, it's um, if you have access to uh, Medline or uh, PubMed, it's it's listed um, there. The title is uh, Peripherally Inserted Central Catheters um, Inserted with Current Best Practice Have Low Deep Vein Thrombosis and Central Line Associated Bloodstream uh, Risk Compared with Centrally Inserted Central Catheters, a Contemporary Meta-Analysis. Now, I know that's a mouthful. Um, it's in the Journal of Vascular Access, and it, uh, it's from this year, so uh, definitely out there. Uh, it's a lot of work, um, but it's it's really an, uh, uh, an honest attempt to try to reflect the current reality so that people can make decisions uh, regarding uh, device choices based on what the patient needs and not based on false information. I love it. Thank you. I have one last question for you, then we're going to let you go. Yeah. This is opinion. This is your opinion My I'm asking opinion. for. I've got lots okay. of those. I have no, I, I do too. <laughs> so catheter vein ratio, no greater than 33% or no greater than 45%. So, uh, yeah, that's, a, I, um, it's a great question. People poo poo the lab study done by, um, Tom Nifong. You remember seeing that one? I, I think do. it was from Hershey, Pennsylvania or something where he did the, the wires, um, wires of different gauges in a flow pathway and you yes. look at what the impact of uh, flow is within the system and once you get above like 33 percent or so your flow drops off so dramatically Dramatic. yeah so i i tend to align with that um because remember um let's say that um a given catheter is traveling along a nonlinear pathway, which in the human body is pretty darn common. So <laughs> your, your flow pathway is going to be irregular anyway. And now if you cause it to be more obstructed by having a larger sized thing, you're going to have post-catheter potential areas of low or no flow. And that's going to be where you're going to have the initiation of thrombus. The, the smaller the catheter, the better. And so if I can, I'm always going to go with the smallest ratio, the smallest catheter to given vein size. And I, I, I practice what I preach and with uh, even peripheral catheters. I couldn't agree with you more. Mine's a pretty quick answer. I, I'm totally a 33% girl. 
So <laughs> I, I can't remember a time that I've gone over that in the recent, you know, gosh, since I started measuring, but. Thank, thank God I, for the advancements in material science where, you know, now with these uh, fourth generation polyurethanes, um, they can get so thin walled uh, and yet be so strong that they can, you know, deliver high volumes with these four French catheters. So there's no excuse. The four French catheters can do everything that a five French could do. So it's really, uh, you know, uh, um, again, it's it's all about the science, uh, the advancement of science and better materials, which allow us to practice better and help reduce patient complications. We just have to pay attention to the details. Absolutely. Well, Dr. Shears, this has been an absolute pleasure. It's um, fun chatting with you again. And thanks for being on our show today. Judy, thank you so much for the opportunity and Eric as well. Um, this stuff is fun. I, I hope I wasn't too blabby, but within all those words, I think there were some uh, important things. And I hope that uh, everyone pays attention to their studies and tries to you know, invest a little bit more time uh, do it late at night, grab a glass of wine and, and get beyond the front page, get into some of the details and make sure that what the paper says is really what's going on there. So I think we need new t-shirts that say, you too. I think we need new t-shirts that say, go small or go home. That's right. There you go. I'll wear <laughs> it. Change like the it. whole paradigm. I like it. Thanks a lot, Dr. Shears. Yeah. Pleasure. You can see the entire AVA network calendar on the AVA website at www.avainfo.org, which is also where you can join AVA or donate to the AVA Foundation. AVA is all over social media. You can follow the Association for Vascular Access on LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Pinterest. Make sure you're subscribed to the I Save That podcast on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Pandora, or Google Play Music for our Android users. You can also find direct links to all episodes on each of these streaming services by visiting avainfo.org slash podcast. The topics discussed on the I Save That podcast are purely for informational purposes. You should personally seek the guidance of clinicians before making any decision that affects your health or the health of, of your patients. Listeners of this podcast are advised to do their own due diligence when it comes to making vascular access decisions. Our goal is to inform and entertain the healthcare landscape while giving you a starting point for your discussions with your own clinicians and professional advisors. By listening to this podcast, you agree that the hosts, our guests, our sponsors, and the Association for Vascular Access are not responsible for the success or failure of your health, your career, or any decision you make related to any of the information we have presented. The I Save That podcast contains segments of copyrighted music that was not specifically authorized to be used, but is protected by federal law and the fair use doctrine, as cited in Section 107 of the U.S. Copyright Act. If you have any specific concerns about this broadcast or our position on fair use defense, please contact us at podcast at avainfo.org. No part of this broadcast shall be reproduced, transmitted, or sold in whole or in any part or in any form without prior written consent from the Association for Vascular Access.